It is Wednesday, October the 2nd, 2019. This is Bob Johnson, and I'm coming to you from 17017 East 12 Mile Road in Roseville, Michigan, the gathering place on a regular basis of the Cornerstone Baptist Church. And Cornerstoners, today I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some things that are currently happening for us and give you just a wee bit of background and then intro a talk that I gave to the men uh, a couple weeks ago. One of the opening lines of our covenant says, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does it mean to work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, for the elders, we believe that part of that work that we do for the unity is to communicate good information to you. Because if we're going to have unity that looks like the unity that God enjoys as Father, Son, and Spirit, which is the unity that we're called to reflect, well, that unity is built upon truth and a commitment to that truth. So, The question that the elders ask is, how well are we communicating to you information so that you are able to assimilate that information, interact with that, uh, get a a good handle on that, so that we're all, in a sense, singing from the same sheet of music or playing from the same playbook. So one of the things that we are seeking to do a more consistent job of is communicating information to you that we think will help you know what we're thinking about so that as a congregation, we're all together. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that the congregation is the soil that raises up elders and leaders in the congregation. And if we are going to have good quality leaders that come out of our congregation, well, our congregation, we as a people, need to be cultivating that. Our soil needs to be rich and thick and very, very moist with the gospel and the spirit So we just need to do all that we can to put some good fertilizer in the ground, good watering systems in the ground, so that there's just good, good atmosphere uh, for, for our church. I work regularly with pastors in the area, and on a personal level in particular, and other church planters, and the regular theme that these brothers are dealing with is how do we cultivate good leadership? Where do we find good leaders? Well, it does come from the congregation. So again, we're trying to do all that we can to give you information. And when you listen to that and you want to listen to that and you want to learn, that is 
such an encouragement. But it's more than an encouragement to us. It is good. It is so good for the congregation. It's good for the future of this church because what that means is is that you prioritize the body and you are valuing that for which Christ died. So this talk that I gave to the men at the men's breakfast is dealing with some of the current issues that we have been confronted with in missions, particularly a movement called the Disciple-Making Movement. Dave Menor, this past Sunday morning, referenced some of that, and we just thought, you know what, we're just going to make the whole talk available, because even though it's a little long, surprise, surprise, I think it gives you a little bit of background that, that helps you see the seriousness of this issue and, and what we're thinking about so that you can be on board where we are. So here's the talk that I gave to the men. And um, so I do have a few slides that support um, what I'm saying, but um, there's nothing that's going to show up on the slide that I'm not going to say. So while you're finishing, um, you, can, you don't have to look at me, and I'm not offended if you don't look at me and you look at your food. I understand that. So um, anyway, what brought about the desire for Dave Menor and I to gather you guys together is the fact that in our um, digging into the landscape of missions, it, we started coming across a, a movement that has been taking root in a lot of mission agencies and affecting a lot of missionaries, some of our own missionaries to some degree. And it's a movement that's called the Disciple-Making Movement, which just the title sounds, that's good, we want to make disciples. But when you dig into the weeds of it and see what they mean by it and what they're doing, then it is not good. And so we're, we're seeing this infiltrate a number of agencies and it's forcing us to have to reassess some things. Well, we don't think it's fair for just the missions team and the elders to be wrestling with these issues and then come to the congregation and say, here, vote on this because we need to make these changes. Now, there are times when we have to do that and when we do those kinds of things, we're, we're saying to the congregation, you need to trust us. What we'd rather do is say, here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're dealing with. Here's what we are aware of so that you not only say, oh, this is why you're making the recommendations, but we want you to be part of that, part of that process as well. But let me go back a few decades, and I think I can set the stage. It might be 
even more helpful. In the middle 70s, a man by the name of Bill Hybels famously launched Willow Creek Church in suburbia Chicago by creating a weekend event that was designed to give people what they wanted in a church. He had spent a lot of time interviewing people as to why they didn't go to church. And the number one reason was they thought it was boring. Number two reason, they didn't like getting hounded for money. Number three reason, they didn't like getting talked down to. So what Bill did, he set out on a mission to create a church where people got basically what they wanted and didn't get what they didn't want. And he redefined the church experience. And the result was not only an enormously large church with an attendant, a weekend attendance of roughly 24,000 people, that was by the end of 2018, but because of the incredible apparent success of that, he launched a network of churches, uh, most of whom can only dream of duplicating that experience. So the vision was clear. Here's what I want you guys to get. In an effort to reach as many people as possible, and I, I like that goal, seeking to reach as many people as possible, but here's, here's the flip. In an effort to reach as many people as possible, you have to package the message in a way that they want to hear it. Well, there's some things about the gospel that nobody wants to hear. Well, the goal of Willow Creek, the goal of the Willow Creek Association is growth. The goal is success. The means to growth and success is find a way that works and give it to them. And what Willow Creek did in a hugely successful way is they tapped a nerve in a big way. They found that people don't like long sermons. Well, that's a shock, isn't it? All right? Or they really don't like sermons at all. So sermons were out. Talks were in. They didn't like hymns. So hymns were out. Cool choruses and secular songs were played. They didn't like being talked down to. So skits and drama was all brought in. People needed their attention to be captured. So elaborate staging, lighting, drama, all created to talk about topics that people were interested in that lasted basically no more than six weeks at a time because you can't expect in our modern social media-driven age, people's attention span lasting any longer than that. And whatever we do, it can't be boring. Whatever we do, it can't be boring. And what Willow Creek did is they packaged their set designs, the skits, the talks. They began selling them as prepackaged deals to churches that were paying to be in the Willow Creek Association. 
And all those churches had to do is basically take that prepackaged deal, all of those little talks, all of those set designs and songs and choruses and skits and everything, add water, stir, and bam, you could have the same kind of experience all over the country. And everybody knows how hard it is to argue about it when more people come now than before, especially when you're able to attract young people. I mean, that's, that's the ticket. And the success of that numerically around the country changed the way that much of evangelical America did church. And it was built on pragmatism. Pragmatism is the idea that the end justifies the means. If in the end you have more people and it looks successful, it doesn't matter how you get there. If all of that, you, you can do whatever you want as long as you get the intended goal. So create Find the right kind of a program. If you build it, they will come kind of a thing. Find what works and do it. Meanwhile, and this is now into the 80s, all sorts of books and seminars started coming out on church growth. And church growth became a huge topic. How to attract visitors, how to turn visitors into attenders, how to turn attenders into givers, keys to church growth, on and on it went. I, re I remember I had in my office, I, I had a section of, of my library on that I had gotten books. It was, it, was, it was probably that big on all of the stuff that was coming out. And, and while there was some wisdom with some of it, the underlying basis through all of it was find what works and do it. And since the idea of commitment oh, scares people and the idea of structures and organization and church polity, that kind of stuff was all viewed as a major turnoff. There was in churches across the country an intentional ignoring and downplaying, even mocking, of church membership. And therefore, churches did not have a defined membership. There was no means of accountability in one another's lives, because nobody really wanted that anyway. And when you don't have means of accountability by the leadership, who time after time after time ended up doing whatever they wanted. And if it worked, those leaders began to be treated as if they were untouchable. They were a demigod. Church was an attraction, an event, an uplifting experience where kids had their fun in their arena. Students were getting entertained in their arena. The adults were getting some helpful tidbits with their espresso. And meanwhile, the leaders of these huge movements were just treated as rock stars. It was the life. Everyone could have church and God on their terms. And the success of Willow Creek and others like it started forcing seminaries and Bible colleges to change the way they trained people. Practical, 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 
practical, if it works, do things that work. That was all the rage. And the result was people were given a model to follow, M-O-D-E-L, a model to follow, but they had very little theological depth. They were ill-equipped for the ministry, and many of them, like Mark Collins, had good intentions, but were not prepared at all for life and ministry, particularly missions. This is what Mark says. What is a church? It was the question I dreaded most. I was 28 years old and had been promoted from a missions team leader to the regional director. So Mark is on the mission field, not just as a missionary, not just as a leader of his organization. He's a leader of a region of, a, of, a, of that agency. And he said, I was sitting at our monthly leaders meeting with 10 other team leaders representing more than 80 full-time supported missionaries who served in the 1040 window. Our discussions were supposed to be motivating and encouraging, and they often were. We talked about evangelism strategy and fruitfulness of, of growing disciples and the potential for multiplication. But then someone would ask that question, or one like it. Is our goal to plant churches? Were we doing that? And oh, by the way, do we even agree on what a church is? What, what makes a church a church? And Mark said, I dreaded the question because I didn't know the answer. Worse, I knew from repeated fruitless discussions that nobody in the room knew the answer. We, we didn't know how to define a church, much less, much less a good one or a healthy one. What was the difference between a church and a gathering of 25 students on a college campus? We had plenty of those. What was the difference between a church and 30 business professionals gathering for regular Bible study? It wasn't just an academic question for us. By God's grace, we had witnessed God produced amazing fruit through our labors. So as we held those discussions, we knew there were believers who would gather every, that very week. These gatherings were filled with people we discipled, many of whom were looking to us for their sense of direction. Quickly, they had discovered we didn't have a whole lot to offer them. In the 19 years since I first stepped onto the mission field, I've seen and heard the same, the same story repeated across organizations and regions. All too often, Western missionaries don't have much to say about the church, at least not with biblical clarity. Among evangelicals, thankfully, the gospel usually remains clear. The inerrancy of scripture is generally affirmed and the importance of theology is typically acknowledged. But the church? Ask some missionaries you know if they can explain how their work relates to the task of church planting and you'll get fewer answers than you'd expect. 
Ask them how they define the church and what a healthy one looks like, and you will get fewer answers still. The reality is that when you send missionaries, when you support them, when you partner with others to do so, you are exporting a doctrine of the church. Over the years, I've concluded that far too often we are exporting bad ecclesiology. As I mentioned this past Sunday morning, ecclesiology is the study of the church, the doctrine of the church. And Mark says, and the results on the mission field can be tragic. So, here's my point. Churches in America are sending missionaries that look like them. And most of the churches in America only care about the numbers, only care about the results, only care about the growth, because the goal is growth. That's what we've been taught. The goal is success. There's this pressure, this expectation to produce results. Now, here's what happens within mission agencies, especially if the whole culture is pragmatism. If you can produce the numbers, you have a great story. And a great story makes for great headlines and promos that you can send out to your donors and to potential donors. And those promos generate dollars from those donors. And in the past 20 years, what, I, what I'm talking about missions as it is generally understood from the United States so this is going to sound like a very Western-centered um, talk because this is our arena. We all recognize that, that missions is not centered in the United States. It's centered in the heart of, of God, okay? But missions, as it is understood from our context, has been heavily influenced by a methodology that is all built on finding what works and doing it regardless of whether or not it is biblical. So, the methodology that's going on is known by different names, one of them being the disciple-making movement. I will call it DMM for short. The disciple-making movement, it's also called a few other things, but it's, it's, it, it is a formula for rapid growth that sounds incredible. But what DMM, Disciple Making Movement, what it is, it's a methodology. And basically what we are being told by the proponents of this is if you follow this method, it will work like nothing you have ever seen before. Follow this method and you will see more results than you have ever seen before. And in fact, those who are following the DMM are an expansion in the kingdom of Jesus that is unprecedented. And when you hear some of this stuff, you are right to be skeptical. So, here's the formula for the disciple-making movement. It has three aspects to it. First of all, obedience-based discipleship. This is foundational to the whole thing. Secondly, person of peace. Third one is discovery Bible studies. 
Now, we're going to look at each of these, and that's going to be my talk. I'm going to unpack what they mean by each of these three things. Then I'm going to summarize this briefly, and then Dave Menor is going to join me, and we're going to carry on a little conversation with you guys because Dave's been the one who has just been running into this over and over and over, and it just got to the point where he and I are just seeing a red alarm, a siren, and, and, and lights that need to go off, and that's why he said, we, 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 need to, we need to share this with you, brothers. But before we look at each of these a little closer, there are two related matters that have contributed to the disciple-making movement. First of all, the proponents of DMM claim that traditional missions, that is, sending a missionary into an unreached area who shares the gospel, who preaches the gospel in an effort to form a church, that traditional missions, they claim, has been more concerned about promoting a church, promoting denominational distinctives and doctrines which are only taking Western values and importing them and imposing them upon cross-cultural situations which is getting in the way of spreading the gospel and making the disciples. One of the major proponents of DMM said, and I quote, when institutions that promote a particular brand of Christianity forget their differences, in other words, lay aside their theology and get back to planting the gospel instead of their doctrines, we may have a chance to complete the Great Commission when we turn to making disciples of Christ instead of converts for our particular brand, we have to complete the Great Commission. Until then, Christians will be doomed to repeat the mistakes of our forefathers. He says, Paul and I, referring to, prefer to learn from our mistakes, not repeat them. When institutions that promote branded Christianity begin to plant the gospel, make obedient disciples of Christ, forget their own pet doctrines and practices, we will see the Great Commission fulfilled in a generation. And I hope you can see the fallacy of that, because a right understanding of the gospel is a right understanding of a whole set of theological beliefs. You, you can't set aside theology without setting aside the gospel. If you set aside theology, what you have, even though you call it the gospel, it's not the gospel. The second thing they claim is that their methodology is taken right out of the Bible. And they claim that they are doing what Jesus did. So, they are saying that their methodology is not really new, but that the traditional methods are not as biblical as the methods of the disciple-making movement. That we're going to unpack and see if that really is the case. So, let's look at this first 
formula, obedience-based discipleship. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. End of the chapter, the Great Commission. I'll begin in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, to the eleven, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All right? Now, it's been a long time since I... I, I, I preach on this from time to time, but... If you remember the, the grammar of this, that there is an imperative. The imperative in that is make disciples. That's the command. Then you have these participles. That's the grammar. That support that. By going, by baptizing, and by teaching them to observe. So we have understood what Christ has said there to make a disciple as being the command, the only way a person can become a disciple is through the gospel, through faith in, in Christ. And there, as Paul said in Romans chapter 10, no one's going to hear the gospel. They can't hear the preaching of the gospel unless somebody goes, which is why Jesus says, go. And those respond to the gospel. You baptize them, okay? And now these brothers and sisters, they need to be Discipled, you teach them, you teach these who have become followers of Christ to observe all that I have commanded. That's not how the DMM people understand this verse. They take that phrase in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. They take that as a description of what Jesus did with the disciples himself. He spent three years with the disciples. In other words, what they claim is that the disciples were Jews who lived under the Old Covenant and for several years they lived with and they listened to Jesus. They were not believers. They didn't become believers till after the cross. But while they were with Jesus, Jesus taught them to obey him. This is critical to understand the disciple-making movement. They claim that the disciples, well, I need to back up a little bit. They do, they do say that Peter's confession of faith in Matthew 16 was when, when, when he came to faith. But all of the disciples were not converted up until that point. And that up until that point, what Jesus was doing, he was teaching them to obey him. So, they argue that what we should be doing is teaching people to obey Jesus. The disciple-making movement teaches that discipleship, which is teaching people to obey Jesus eventually leads to conversion, hopefully. This thinking is, is fundamentally flawed. 
Yes, Peter made a great confession of faith in Christ. But he started following Jesus along with his brother Andrew and James and John and Nathaniel in the end of John chapter 1. Leaving his nets, leaving the boats, leaving the father, his father's business, and it was all based upon the mutual confession that Andrew and they were making is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the King of Israel. That's right in the text. And over time, their understanding of who Christ was obviously deepened and its definition filled out. But Peter was a follower of Jesus long before Matthew 16. So to say that Jesus spent three years coaching and mentoring them to be obedient, that now we are called to just teach people to obey Jesus. And hopefully that will lead them into conversion and saying, oh, that's what Jesus did. That, that's wrong. And it's dangerously wrong. Because when you look at the whole storyline of the Bible, you can't obey Jesus without the Spirit. I mean, three-fourths of the Bible is the Old Testament. Which, what's the story of the Old Testament? It's God's unfaithful people. They can't obey. He gave them the law. What did the law say? Obey me. And no one can do it. You can't obey God without a new heart. You can't obey God's law without a new birth. That's hammered over and over and over and over in the New Testament. But, but... DMM proponents say that effective missions is grounded in getting people together to start following the commands of Jesus and obeying him. Well, how do you do that? That brings us to the next step. You find a person of peace. Where does that come from? Well, that idea comes from Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent his disciples out on a little short-term missions trip in Israel. Remember that? And Jesus gave them these instructions. If you find someone who's willing to listen to you, then let your peace, that is your blessing, be on that home. If no one in that village is willing to listen to you, then you move on, wiping the dust off of your sandals. So according to the disciple-making movement, that is our strategy. You go and you find someone who is receptive and open to the teachings of Jesus, and you start with that person. And you use that person as a bridge builder to the community. This particular model, by the way, is extremely popular within Muslim cultures. Because 
unlike some of the stuff that you may hear in the news, a lot of Muslim people are just exceedingly kind and wonderful people who are just really open to religious conversations. And you can have a lot of really fruitful conversations with them. And if you find somebody that, you know, likes to talk about religious things together. Well, in the DMM model, oh, that person is your person of peace. That's your bridge builder to the community. You, you get that person to start reading the Bible and with others in hopes of attracting others who want to obey Jesus too. Because within particularly the Islamic culture, Jesus is a respected figure. Now, in this... You don't preach, you don't confront, you don't evangelize in any traditional way. You simply meet with this person and as many others as you can using that person of peace as the leader. You, you defer to them, they're the leader. The missionary who knows the gospel, he's not the leader. The person of peace is the leader. All that the missionary does is just kind of facilitate the conversation. That's hugely problematic. One is it's bad exegesis of Matthew 10 and Luke 10. A son of peace in the New Testament that Jesus referred to was someone who received and believed the message of Jesus. He wasn't an unbeliever who is being perceived the gospel. He or she is someone who has received it and therefore the peace of God is on their life. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, you let your peace be on them. But in the disciple-making movement, the person of peace is treated like a believer given leadership responsibilities in spite of not even professing faith in Jesus or even understanding who he really is. So the, the, the problem with particularly this step of the disciple-making movement is that they're comparing apples to oranges. To, to, to take the setting of Matthew 10, when Jesus launched, sends out the disciples two by two and saying, that's how we're supposed to plant churches. No, wait a minute. That, you, you, that when you want to look at how Jesus launched the church planting effort, you start with the book of Acts. In Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, they weren't going into all the world. They were not going into cross-cultural situations to start churches like the book of Acts. In Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, Jesus had not yet been rejected by the nation. They were going only, only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's what Jesus told them. They were going to Israel to tell the Jews, your Messiah was here. The kingdom had come. And when you read the book of Acts and you see how the Spirit of God actually directed the disciples on the day of Pentecost and you see how we're studying now in chapters 14 and 15 and 16 how the church of Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas and this week Paul and Silas. You don't, you don't see any of this stuff going on at all. 
But in the disciple-making movement, you have an unbeliever, the person of peace, who's trying to influence other unbelievers into obeying Jesus, even though none of them may even know what the gospel is. But that's okay. That's okay, according to the DMM, because they'll get there. Because, number three, they're going to read the Bible together. They're going to have these discovery Bible studies. A discovery Bible study is people reading and discussing what they are reading. The missionary's job is not to preach or teach. Let them discover on their own the truths of the Bible so they know what to I've... If you've ever been part of a quote-unquote Bible study where everybody just reads a verse and goes around and says, this is what it means to me, 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 and then you go on to the next verse, this is what it means to me, this is what it means to me, this is what it means to me, you know, you, 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 you lose your mind, don't you? Because everybody's their own authority. And everybody can interpret it the way they want to interpret it. And we have said for years, that, that, that's disastrous. It's not, I get to impose my meaning upon the text. The text imposes its meaning upon us. But in this model, it's unbelievers who are gathering together, who are reading the Bible together, and no one is allowed to speak authoritatively in that situation. So, I mentioned David and Paul, uh, not Washer, but Watson. They said, yeah, not Paul Washer. He would never do this. Okay, all right. David and Paul Watson. <laughs> Washer would be shooting me right now, screaming at me, <laughs> looking at me with his fiery eyes very intently. I said that. David and Paul Watson, they said, quote, when working with lost people, we have to avoid falling into the role of explaining Scripture. Close quote. Their argument is that whenever someone explains Scripture, then that person becomes the authority instead of the Scripture. And we want people to look to the Bible for their answers instead of to a person. Now, now, now there's certainly some truth to that. I understand that. We definitely want people to look to the Bible as their final authority, but to claim that teaching and preaching is the problem, that is very problematic. So the hope that advocates of the disciple-making movement have is that people will gather together, they will read, they will discuss the Bible, and they will on their own all come to the right conclusions. These people who gather for regular Bible studies will... In their model, they claim eventually discover Jesus. They will trust him. That Bible study will then just kind of on its own morph into a church without any real... Instead of a Western church culture and style being imposed upon these people where you have this 
formal gathering, singing, praying, preaching, membership, organization, and structure. No, they claim that even though these groups are initially made up of and led by unbelievers, that even these unbelievers can share the gospel. In fact, they say unbelievers can share the gospel in many cases without even knowing it. And they recognize that some of these groups will get off course, but it's not up to the missionaries to correct them. Leave it to the Holy Spirit to do that. Now, before, before I critique this, I want to point out that it is this step right here, the Discovery Bible Studies, that gets the greatest amount of publicity. The number of Bible studies. If a, if, a, if a missionary can go into an area and he can find a person of peace and he can get that person to gather some other people together and they try to obey Jesus and they're, they're gathering together to read the Bible together, then as many of those groups as he or she can get and the number of people in those groups, that is what the missionaries are trained to use as the basis of their statistics. And that is why we hear these glowing statistics of thousands of churches being planted and tens of thousands of people being converted. Then the problem is it's just not true. We, we supported, as a church, a missionary couple for many years who claimed to have started 75 churches in the country where they worked. I mean, they would, they would come back and tell us that, and, and we were thrilled. I mean, that report was embraced. It was hugely encouraging. One day, I innocently asked them about the churches. Did they have pastors? No, they had a problem finding any pastors. They had no membership. They were not organized. And I realized they weren't churches at all. Most of these were Bible studies that had been formed and they would go and travel around and meet with the time to time. And because there were 75 of them, they could only get there every so often. And most of them have faded away. They weren't churches. The failure rate of the DMM model is extraordinarily high. Because what the Bible calls a church and what they call a church is quite different. The Bible champions, here's, here's my critique of this Discovery Bible study. The Bible champions the function and office of a preacher-teacher. Even in a perfect world, Genesis 1 and 2, mankind needed instruction. After Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, God revealed his word through instructors, through prophets who taught in a variety of ways. 
and at a variety of times, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God sent Christ to be the ultimate teacher, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God didn't leave it up to us to figure it out on our own. Christ gave apostles and prophets as the foundation to the church. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. What did the apostles do? They didn't gather people together and just say, you kind of come up with this on your own. No, there was authoritative instruction that was given. What What were the prophets doing in the early prophets? They were declaring the word of God. And then as we looked at even from this past Sunday, Christ gave pastors and teachers, Ephesians 4.11, to the church to build up the body. Secondly, the New Testament commands and models the function of preaching and teaching. Jesus taught. Look look with me in Matthew chapter 2. I met Matthew this morning. This is your book, brother. All right. Um, What you see, and if you know the famous Sermon on the Mount, okay? The sermon that Jesus preached. All right? What did he do? Right in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, this is really interesting, guys. Okay, because this, this is an example of good exegesis. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, and you know in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, how does he begin? He opens his mouth and he teaches them. Now, in Matthew 28, what does Jesus say to the disciples? He, goes, he says, you, you, you go do what I did. You you teach them to observe what I did. That's what I did. I taught them. And how did he teach them? He explained the scriptures. Verse 17, Matthew chapter 5. Do you not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then what does he do from that point on then for the next section of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you have heard this. Let me give you the rest of the story. You have heard this. Let me give you the rest of the story. But I say unto you, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the word. Jesus not only explained the scriptures, Jesus interpreted the scriptures. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus, on the day he rose again from the dead, is on the Emmaus Road with two of the disciples. He says, verse 25, Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And, look at verse 27, and beginning with Moses and All the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In John chapter 5, verse 39, what does Jesus say? 
to the, to, to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. What Jesus was saying is, I am the interpretive principle upon which the whole scripture is to be understood by. Acts chapter 2, Peter interpreted, explained, and applied the scriptures. Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is talking with the, the man from Ethiopia, the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8, verse 30, opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Acts chapter 11, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people who believed turned to the Lord. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas preached the word of God. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And Paul, who is the exemplary church planter, said, I was appointed to be a preacher. 1 Timothy 2, 7. Not a facilitator, a preacher. Timothy was commanded to... Oh, this, is, this is very, I think, insightful. Go with me to 2 Timothy. I want you to see the whole thing here. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Many of you are rightly familiar with how that chapter ends with you know, such a beautiful emphasis upon the authority of the word and the effect of the word. All scripture, verse 16... 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Timothy, what are you supposed to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded and in endure suffering. What's the next phrase? Do the work of an evangelist. What's an evangelist? He's a church planner. Timothy... The planning of a church, the doing the work of an evangelist, and the preaching of the word, they are not opposed. They, they go together. You can't do the one without the other. My third critique is that Discovery Bible studies, as they define it, they are not, they are not the God-ordained method of planning. A church is defined by its membership. That's how you know who's in the church. You have to have membership. Well, how do you know a person's a member? Well, you got to have a profession of faith. The profession of faith is... And, and, and how, to, how, how was the church identified 
from the very first day in Acts chapter 2. Those who received the word were baptized. And there were 3,000 of them on that day. There was a profession of faith. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, they joined themselves together to the breaking of bread, to the, to the teaching. The New Testament church had a means of knowing who was in the church and who wasn't. One of the clearest examples of that is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And Paul says to Timothy, the church is supposed to take care of the widows. And here's what qualifies for a widow in the church to be placed on the widow's list. Now, when Paul said that to Timothy, was he saying, you're responsible for every widow in the city of Ephesus? No. Every widow in the Roman Empire? No. The widow's in your church. Well, how do you know who's in your church? You got to know who's in your church to be able to know what are the widows, right? Paul said to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when you are gathered together, then you have to deal with this man who is living in a sinfully unrepentant way. Well, you got to know who that is. Hebrews 13, 17 says to the members of the church, you are to obey your leaders and submit to them for they watch over your souls. How are the elders supposed to know who they are responsible for if we don't have a way of defining who that is? A church is defined by its membership. Secondly, a church has elders and deacons. We saw that from the end of Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas went back to the churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and they appointed elders for them. And then Paul, when he wrote to Timothy about, okay, I need you to go to Ephesus and organize things there. Titus, when you go back to the island of Crete and you help out those churches there, all right, here's the qualifications. You, you need elders in those churches. Here's the qualifications for an elder. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. There's, there is structure. There is God-given, God-ordained structure. Not only elders, but deacons. And there's provisions for deaconesses as well in 1 Timothy chapter 3. A church gathers. It gathers regularly, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. It gathers weekly, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3. And it usually gathers on the first day of the week, though that's not commanded. It historically has been a practice. So when the Lord Jesus sent the Holy Spirit upon the church at Pentecost, we what we see from the Bible is the apostles go forth preaching and teaching. We never see them looking for an unbelieving person of peace to facilitate Bible studies in hopes of conversion. Throughout Acts, Luke describes the activity of the apostles with verbs of teaching, proclaiming, refuting, reasoning, persuading, which requires hearers to understand, to think, to reason, to consider, and examine. There is simply no evidence of any character in the Bible being commanded to nor providing the example of 
facilitating a self-controlled, untaught Bible study. Further, there are no examples of the apostles nor any other leader employing unbelievers to do the work of evangelism. A discovery Bible study that is defined by the DMM is simply an unbiblical, untenable tool built upon the sandy foundation of obedience-based discipleship and person of peace. I'm going to call Dave up here in a second. But last Sunday, we looked at the fact that good ecclesiology will protect and advance good soteriology. A good doctrine of the church will protect and advance the gospel. The DMM is a current example of how bad ecclesiology has given birth to and promotes bad soteriology, which in turn is clueless not only about the gospel, but then what is the church. Missions is driven by the local church. Antioch is a great example of that. Many mission agencies drive us to this, but they don't really believe it. Because in many cases, mission agencies are governed by people who don't understand the doctrine of the church. They are governed by people who can raise funds, who can make connections, who can organize, but they don't really have a clue as to what the church is. They have no experience in a healthy church. I have a very dear friend who's a missionary, and he is with a very reputable mission agency. One of his major burdens, what he is doing is helping establish healthy churches and helping churches become healthy. And he said to me, I tried to explain this to my own agency. They have no idea what I'm talking about. We, we want missionaries who have our DNA so that they will replicate what we believe in practice. And we're not trying to impose Western, you know, we're not saying, well, you got to meet it Sunday morning at 1045. No, that is, that is not our point at all. There are, you, you, obviously there's things that you have to do within a particular culture, but there are some things that are cross-cultural, like preaching and evangelizing, baptizing, forming churches, discipling, Shepherding, elders, deacons. That's the history of the New Testament church. So when we discover that we are supporting missionaries or we are supporting mission agencies who are promoting a model that we are diametrically opposed to, and doing this, and in some, in, in some cases, we, we didn't know this was going on, and now, the, you know, it's like, it's like you, you, you find a little string, and you go, oh, what's this? And you start pulling on it, and you go, whoa, what's this? What's this? What's this? And where it goes, like, man, this is not good. We find ourselves then to be in a very difficult position. 
because we love our missionaries, but in some cases, we completely disagree with what they're advocating. And so that, that, that's led us to having to attempt to help them do course correction. And in some cases, we may end up having to stop financial support because we don't believe. Now, we don't know if it's going to get to that point or not down the road, but Dave and I were alarmed enough that we said, you know what, we, we need to get you guys on board with what's going on.